The Deeper Dig is sponsored by VITA, the Vermont Economic Development Authority. Since 1974, VITA has provided financing assistance to thousands of Vermont businesses, entrepreneurs, farm and forestry enterprises, renewable energy producers, and many others. VITA's role is simple, to help businesses grow and create good jobs. They work closely with banks, credit unions, and other lenders to develop financing solutions that help promote a vibrant and diverse economy. If you want to grow your business, head to VEDA.org and let VITA help you. From VT Digger, I'm Mike Dougherty. This is The Deeper Dig. This week, diving in headfirst. We'll hear two stories from VT Digger journalists recorded live last week at Foam Brewers in Burlington for an event called Local Lives. Our friends at Back Pocket Media produced this series that brings together journalists and community members for storytelling and conversation. Our latest show was all about what happens when your work brings you into uncertain or even dangerous situations. For Fred Tice, our business reporter, deciding how to approach a sensitive case left him wondering how to tell the full story without hurting the people at the center of it. Here's Fred. Thank you. So this is a story about how I had a conflict about how I was going to tell a story about a young man. Uh, This was 2007. It was several years into the war in Iraq, I guess uh, four years into the war in Iraq. And it was the day after Mother's Day. I was in the newsroom at WBUR in Boston, and we find out that the son of one of the most prominent critics of the war has been killed in the war in Iraq. Uh, This critic was a political science professor, Andrew Basevich, at uh, Boston University. And um, he uh, had himself served in Vietnam. He had stayed in the Army. He'd become a colonel. But he he was very much opposed to the United States being involved in in the war in in Iraq. And um, I realized that the way I should be telling the story is you know, calling the dad, and um, so I did. I, I got in touch with the with the father, and he did. He just he you know he was just way too upset to talk, and so he suggested that I talk to his three daughters, the three sisters of the young man, also known, named Andrew Basevich. And the sisters tell me, you know, our parents are so upset; they're way too upset. We can't talk to you at the house. But we're going to meet you on Route 1 at a Starbucks. There's a little outdoor area there, uh, busy, busy highway. And um, we sit down and we have this interview. And um, they're, they're wonderful. They're super generous. They talk to me about you know, their brother from the time he was a little boy to the time that he got to college. And he uh, decided he wanted to go into ROTC and... He uh, had asthma, and so they wouldn't let him into ROTC. Um, but then after college, he decided to join the Army anyway as a private, and then he um, eventually uh, went to officer candidate school, and he went to Iraq. And um, they have something, they have a message, though, for me. Um, and um, here it is. I think a lot of people think that this is a story just about a professor that was against the war, that had a son that died in the war. 
and and it's not you know the more than anything I think we um, think our brother was just a, he was a fantastic human being and um, and a really a gift, and we will miss him. So I do the story with the sisters, um, and um, I true to what they want, uh, but also note that I mean this is obviously the son of a famous. Um, anti-war critic, and we include this cut in, in the story. Um, and the father hears the story, and he's, he gets in touch with me. He says, I, I really liked what you, know, what you did with my daughters, and I will talk to you. So I go over to the house, and um, we sit there in the screen porch, and the father goes through the kinds of things that so many parents that I have interviewed, because I did a lot of these stories, um, you know, he's trying to process the loss of his child. And um, he, so we, we talk about that. Um, but then we get to a point where he, he says something that really takes me aback um, in, in the way that he's trying to process the loss of his son. I mean, one of the things that I've been... Uh, really struggling with uh, over the last several days is to try to understand my own responsibility for my son's death. That really took me back, to, you know, took me aback. And um, he, he also said something to me that um, really stayed with me and that also talked about in, in the story that I would do, and that is that we all are responsible for his son's death because... Um, you know, this is f several years into into the war. Basically, the whole the country's turned against the war. Um, and he says, "What kind of a democracy is this when the people have spoken, but nothing changes?" And so I do a story with the perspective of the father. Um, days pass. Andrew Basevich Jr.'s body is brought home to Dover, Delaware, then up to Hanscom Air Force Base outside Boston, eventually to the suburbs where um, the family lives for the funeral. And in the meantime, all week, I've been uh, trying to get in touch with the friends to try to get a different perspective on uh, this young man. So these are the people who went to Boston University with him. They're now kind of all over the country. and. Um, they, they, you know, they do have a very different perspective. And I'm, I'm excited that, I mean, excited, again, the, perhaps the wrong word, but, you know, I'm really, um, I really want to uh, bring this perspective into the next story. It's going to be a story that's going to run uh, the evening after the funeral and then the next morning. And, um, you know, the friends tell me all kinds of things, you know, goofy things, serious things. And... But then we get to this particular thing that one of the friends, James Carney, tells me. He didn't, well, I know, you know his father's a military man, career military man. I actually tried to discourage him from joining the military because when he was uh, not allowed to continue in ROTC, I was like, it, it was a sign, you know. I'm like, it's a sign. You're not supposed, you know, you're not supposed to do it because, although I know he could, he could conform to the military and 
that lifestyle. I just didn't see him. It wasn't a fit for him, and I don't think I think he didn't think it was a fit for him either. But I think he thought it was like his father. It was, it was good to serve your country, and you know I'll serve my country, and then that chapter of my life will be over. And as far as the political realm goes, which is what he was interested in, um, you know I think that he felt that that would make him more appealing in the long run to people having served his country. You know it's, it was a good resume builder, I think. A good resume builder. Uh, Andrew had wanted to go into politics. I, I think this is a really interesting thing to put in the story. Um, we get into the edit booth. Radio stories are edited in these tiny little edit booths, and uh, you're there doing what I'm doing with you right now. You know, talking, you play your cut, you talk, you play your cut. And uh, I'm there with the editor, and um, usually she's very good about telling me, okay, you need to do this, you need to do that. But I'm telling her, I, you know, I'm really conflicted about whether I should use this in the story because um, on the one hand, I feel it gives uh, uh, the audience a fuller picture of this young man. On the other hand, you know, the audience doesn't have a big stake here, but that's who I serve, right? That's who I work for. That's my, that's my vocation. That's my avocation. It's, it's everything. But at the same time, I'm really worried that I'm going to hurt the family if we run this in the story. Um, because it's not presenting their bro beloved brother and son, um, you know, in, in a purely positive light, right? It's presenting him as a normal guy who's thinking about things like, hey, maybe if I join the military, you know, that'll look good on my resume when I run for office. And um, I, I decide that we should run it, and that, that the audience should hear this. And I have felt guilty about this ever since. I mean, it's been, you know, 13 years. Not 13 years, but 2007 to, to, to now. Um, um, and um, so, you know, and it's weird. I've never talked to the family about it. Um, they've never, again, had an occasion to, to cross paths with them. Um, I think I did the right thing, but I still feel super guilty about it. Um, and I think this is the sort of thing that journalists go through all the time. I mean, we have these questions about um, how are we true to the audience? How do we serve the audience? How do we give them the fullest story? And at the same time, how are we true to the people who have led us into their lives to tell their stories? Our senior editor, Adi Guha, got her start in journalism in Mumbai. For Adi, going into a situation without knowing what to expect has been a constant. And one incident early in her career set the tone. Here's Adi. It was August 2017, and it was the first year of the Trump presidency. I was a reporter for a DC nonprofit called Rewire, and I was covering race in America. I was in Charlottesville, and I was in a huge crowd, so packed that I had nowhere to move. And then word reached us that a car had plowed into the crowd, not too far away from us, and snippets of information kept dribbling down to where I was, 
and it said that it was intentional and that people of color were being targeted. I had been a reporter in America for 15 years and like a slap on my face, I suddenly became the other. And I looked around, I was surrounded mostly by white people and I wondered for the first time in my entire reporting life if I was safe. And I flashed back to a different time in a very different place where I should have been scared for my life, but I wasn't because I was in my 20s. <laughs> and I didn't think death was real. <laughs> I was in Mumbai, one of India's largest cities, in my first real reporting job as a cub reporter for the Indian Express, a very large national newspaper in India, and I wasn't even part of the main newsroom. I was like a side beginning reporter at a fledgling startup that covered the internet because that was a new thing in the 90s. <laughs> and I was in Churchgate Station which was a local train station in Bombay where I went to many times. But this particular time, I was there for a different reason. I was going to interview a very notorious man who rarely granted interviews to the media. I was standing at a particular gate at this station and I had no idea what would happen when two men came up to me dressed in white, wearing Gandhi caps, which was the name given to these white triangular caps that Gandhi used to wear. And they kind of ushered me, they kind of, uh, you know, hit me on my elbows and nuzzled me down the street to a generic white ambassador, which is the equivalent of a Toyota Camry in <laughs> India. And I got into it and they barely spoke any words to me, but they took out a black cloth and they said that no harm would come to me if I complied. And they blindfolded me. And there I was in my 20s, not a political reporter, not an investigative journalist, barely a journalist at all, blindfolded in a car with two strange men. And I thought it was the most exciting thing I'll ever do. I'm like, I'm an investigative journalist. I'm going to win the Pulitzer. This is awesome. <laughs> and so we went on this crazy ride. And all this time, I was wondering how I ended up in this situation. The Indian Express was an entire high-rise building. And I worked in this obscure business publication department fresh out of college. But I was always barging into the main newsroom to see what was going on, a very male newsroom. Most of the women who worked at Indian Express worked in features or in entertainment. There were very few women in the political newsroom. At that time in Bombay, there was a huge scandal going on about buildings that were falling down, very similar to what happened in Miami, only it was multiple buildings. They were less than five years old. 
and they were built with substandard materials that was suspected to be supplied by the underground by the underground mafia that was controlling building materials in bombay at that time indian express had broken multiple news stories about the people connected to this but as underworld everywhere we did not have any major connections to them i had covered a mill a protest at, of mill workers at a mill in bombay where i heard about a notorious thug called arun gauli who started at these mills and was expected to be behind the supply of building materials for these buildings that were falling down and i had kind of ingratiated myself into the newsroom and managed to write a story about this guy's particular connection now he was a guy people hardly saw or heard from no one knew where he lived i would describe him as the al capone of chicago everyone knew he existed he had a great following he was a huge thug but also a hero among certain people and he had a lot of power and was not answerable to anybody he was the man i was going to interview because he had asked for me and in my naivete i assumed he asked for me because i am a fabulous investigative journalist <laughs> but really he asked for me because i was new clueless and the youngest reporter in the indian express family so there i was in this car blindfolded thinking i'm like in a james bond movie and amazing things are going to happen to me and i finally ended up at like a who knows where i ended up but we went down steps and they kind of guided me into a room and when they unfolded me i was in front of a very little man with a big turban and a giant mustache and of oh, the weird thing in reporting about in india is that because of the cultural because of the culture there whenever you went to a person's house they expected you to eat and drink with them so there was a gigantic gujarati platter in front of me which involved maybe 20 bowls and rice and rotis and he basically the first thing he said to me was khao which is eat in hindi and so i'm like this is not a good time to argue with anybody so i just sat down and i'm like all of 85 pounds really small i look like a not even high school maybe like a middle school student i wouldn't have taken myself seriously so i'm like okay i have to sit down and eat this giant meal that weighs more than me and clearly he's not going to talk to me until i do this so somehow i think i sat down i'm a very slow eater it did not help so i think an hour passed with us doing small talk and both of us eating this gigantic meal at the end of it i asked him all the questions i had and he completely played me because this is a guy whom the internet described as hoodlum jailed thug corrupt politician and these and eventually daddy 
which if you go to Netflix is a new movie that Bollywood has made about his life in the last two years. This is like a new discovery I made when I Googled him. So there I was, and I asked him all my questions about substandard building materials and how he's behind it, and he denied everything, and he said it's all lies, and that he really believes in the people, and he like straightened his Gandhi cap, which is very funny because all these underworld thugs and criminals in India always compare themselves to Gandhi while not having any of the Gandhian ideals. And he was like, I'm for the people. I want everybody to have a good life. And the government is corrupt and just completely played me, never answered any of my questions, and you know, was really condescending the whole time. And so we went back. The two men blindfolded me again, dropped me back at Churchgate Station. And I remember standing there in the afternoon light and wondering if this whole thing happened at all if I, or if I imagined it. And I remember having to call my aunt in Bombay back, who was far more afraid than I was about what would happen to me that day and made me swear that I would call her back if I came back alive. <laughs> so I went back to the office and the editors were amazing. They knew that I was completely inexperienced, not equipped to write a political story about an underworld thug like Arun Gauli, but were also made me sign several uh, non-disclosures about how they would not be responsible if anything happened to me, but also told me that I'm under no obligation to go for this interview. But I thought I was going to win a Pulitzer, so what the hell? I was like, I'm going to do it, no matter what. So my story was a complete fluff piece that I would never want anyone to see today. But the one good thing that came out of it is that in a very rare move, the editors of the Indian Express wrote a front page editorial about how the press in India is treated and how they are completely unable to do real journalism when people like this control the narrative and do not respond to our calls and completely manipulate how the story is framed. So there I am in Charlottesville thinking about a time when my life was probably really a threat and I didn't care to 20 years ahead when I was suddenly worried about how I would get out of there and whether I would get out of there alive. And I've spent my whole life in journalism and there's nothing, I can't imagine anything else that I would ever do. And I've been in a lot of strange situations, either unexpected or surprising or not planned for. But no matter what the situation is, and I'm sure this is true of journalists all over the world, we go into it and we write the story. Thank you. You can find the full recording from last week's event on our YouTube page. That's youtube.com slash VTDigger. 
you'll hear two more stories about jumping in headfirst from the amazing Marlon Fisher and Suzanne Schmidt. Thanks to our friends at Back Pocket Media for producing Local Lives, and thanks to Foam Brewers and Deep City for hosting us. You're listening to The Deeper Dig, a weekly podcast from the VT Digger Newsroom. Search for it and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts, and you'll get new episodes as soon as they land. We use music this week by Blue Dot Sessions. We'll be back next week with more stories from the Digger Newsroom. See you then.